The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Some of you are just in shock that there's secular music playing in the church service. I understand that too, but there's a point to this. Another song that has become an anthem, Born in the USA. In the 1980s, this song got adopted at a Ronald Reagan uh, pro, uh, whatever you want to call it, pro-election rally, and they actually wanted to play it in there, and they actually even went to, who writes it, who's seen this? Bruce Springsteen. They went to Bruce Springsteen, certain that he would be a supporter of Ronald Reagan because he's singing Born in the USA, and he's such a patriot. There's a problem with that. Here's another problem that can happen with the Lord's Supper. Not Lord's Supper, I'm sorry, the Lord's Prayer. You can recite something over and over and over and not actually know what you're saying. Because this song that everyone, when you hear it, it's like, yeah, born in the USA, born in the USA. And they're like, let's use it in political rallies. You know what the song's actually about? Have you ever paid attention to the words? Most of us, no. We look at it as, oh, it's such a pro-USA song. It's actually a song about a guy who had had a really rough life, got sent to Vietnam, comes back, gets mistreated by those around him and his government, and is constantly looking and pursuing the quote-unquote American dream, and it's never fulfilled. It's not a positive song. Certainly not the kind of song you want representing you in your election campaign, correct? But see, this is kind of a little human nature thing. We find things we like, and we go, oh, I'm in, I'm in, but we don't always necessarily pay attention to what's actually being said. Or we hear something so much that we, we forget the meaning of it and it just becomes so familiar, we're just kind of not there anymore. Well, Jesus gave us a poem. He gave us a song, you might say, in order to learn how to pray. And it's one that we all know, I'm going to say all, I shouldn't say that all the time because not everyone grew up in the kind of the churchy background or Sunday school and all that stuff like I did. But most of you know it, because when the apostles came to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray, he said, pray like this. Hallowed be thy name. Keep going. You're wrong. Stop. Already you messed up, but that was a little bit of a trick. First of all, there's always the ever, like, no one knows what to do. Trespasses or debts? Debts or trespasses? Like, we don't know what to do, right? And every time we get there, we're just sort of guessing and then listening in to see if everybody else jumps in. Forgive us our trespasses as we, you know, okay, so we don't know what to do with that one. The last part, now that's, it's the benediction, if you will, the end of the Lord's Prayer. It's beautiful, right? It's a beautiful part of the prayer. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And it's awesome. And it's a, not in the early transcripts of the Bible, actually. Uh, it's, historians most believe now that this was in a Greek manuscript that was mistakenly identified as an ancient biblical manuscript and was included. But most modern translations of the Bible now don't include that at all. It's in none of the Alexandrian texts. It's only in some of the Byzantine texts. It's a part that got added as a benediction, and maybe some of your Bibles don't even actually include it. But we just go on autopilot because we know it, right? And we just, that's what we say all the way through. But do we know what it means? And what does it mean to us? Because prayer is such 
nobody really wants to talk about prayer in a lot of circles because prayer is in so many places viewed as cumbersome. Sometimes I think it's because everyone, if you're like, hey, are you praying enough? Our stock answer is supposed to be, no, I need to be praying more. I need to be praying more. I need to be praying differently. I need to, and prayer becomes a source of guilt, uh, burden. It is a discipline. Prayer is a discipline, but we don't naturally like disciplines, correct? So as I was looking at this text, I'm like trying to think through like, how do we teach through this? How do we talk about understanding what God's given us, understanding what prayer should look like? But at the same time, the last thing I want you guys to do is come in on a Wednesday night when I say, how's everybody doing? And two people say yes, the rest of you didn't even hear me because it's been a long, tiresome week already. Last thing in the world I want to do is come in, start teaching about prayer, and add one more thing to your list during a busy week that you go home with going, I'm not doing this right either. I got to do more of this now too. I don't, I don't think I want to do that. I don't think that's what Jesus was trying to do there. I think Jesus gave us a gift and so what I'd rather do is try to walk through this and try to, try to open up some of the beauty and the majesty and the awe that's in a text that most of us have become completely numb to in hopes that then it will reawaken a desire to do those things. And I'll be honest, I even wrestled with, I was like, okay, so should we move worship and communion to the end? Because how do you teach on prayer if you don't have a time of prayer? And I'm just going to tell you right now, we're probably not going to have a time of prayer at the end of that, and I'm not going to assume guilt for that. We're here to study, we're here to learn, we're gonna learn some of these things, and then I really want you guys to chew on these things and go forward. In fact, I'll give you a topic that you can meditate on tomorrow with regards to this and with regards to prayer. Tomorrow morning, if you don't have something already lined up, you wanna get up, spend some time in the Word, spend some time with the Lord, open up this exact thing that we're about to go through and study, look at, and meditate on how the Lord's Prayer actually teaches us about the person of Jesus. That it's not just something Jesus told us to do, but it's almost autobiographical about how Jesus lived, how Jesus operated, the way Jesus talked, the way Jesus prayed, but more about who Jesus is. So, so I want to just awaken a little renewed awe in what prayer is. Does that make sense? So it will not be a, all, you can't teach on prayer in 40 minutes and cover everything anyway. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to move forward on this. So let's just take a look at it right now. The makeup of the Lord's Prayer. There's an introduction, and then there's two sections built very much like a poem with, with equal length, kind of balance within the way that the, the actual text is written here. And then I want you to be able to notice something as you're looking through them. There's this introduction, and then the first section of the Lord's Prayer, you'll notice patterns. Your, 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 always speaking to God. Your name, your kingdom, all of these things, your, your, your focus to God. Then in the second half of the Lord's Prayer, the pattern shifts. And what does it become then? Us, 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 completely different. I think there's some really interesting, just to give you some idea about the idea how this gives us some insight into who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? He's fully who? Fully God and fully man. When Jesus was asked, actually right before this text, what is the greatest commandment? He actually gave a two-part, if you will, answer to that. The first answer was, love the Lord your God. The second answer was, love your neighbor as yourself. So you guys can just chew on that tomorrow as you're thinking about what this is. But we see this two-fold aspect of what the Lord's Prayer actually looks like here. But in this thing, Jesus is telling us to pray this daily. Daily. 
It's as if there's something he's seeking to ingrain in us about this. And oh, by the way, you might notice that second part, it doesn't go your, your, your speaking to God. And then the second part go me, 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 me. It says what? Us. It's community. Anybody that thinks or salvation is, pre, is a, a, a purely an individual endeavor, this is not true. This is identifying us with the people of God. It's, under, it's identifying us with the community of the church as well. But this is what he calls. So let's just jump into it. First is the intro. He says this, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, if you remember anything that you go home with tonight, besides the fact that Jeff played two secular songs in the service, please remember this. Remember the importance of the fact that Jesus starts out by saying, when you pray, say this, our Father. This unlocks everything that happens in the rest of this prayer. This is so incredibly important. Who do we pray to? Our, come on, say it with confidence. Who do we pray to? Our Father. This is so important because we are so prone to see God as some distant landlord that's just waiting on us to step out of line so we can be evicted. And when Jesus teaches them to pray, he specifically says, pray our Father. Jesus teaches us to pray to a father. And listen, this isn't just the intro to the prayer. It's the context for the entire thing. The whole prayer is to be done in the context of not you talking to a landlord, not you talking to some grumpy neighbor, not you talking to some dis distant, distant king, but you are praying to a father. Let, let me show you what I mean. Take a look in the actual context of this exact passage. Go back and look at Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your... Father who is in secret and your father who is in secret will reward you. He says right out the gate, you do not need to pray or seek or desire the praises of men because you have the ear of a father. That's the very context in which he gives the Lord's prayer. He's saying, you pray different than them. You're not doing it for people to hear you. You're not doing it to like garner some attention. You're not trying to have so many eloquent words and think of every possible prayer request and just impress everybody with how you're just talking to a father who is listening willingly. This is the context of the actual prayer. This reframes our entire identity. Think about this. When Jesus is on the earth, he very rarely says God when he's referring to God. He does a few times. He usually says father, which is unique and significant because not many rabbis in that day would have actually said father. Now, there were some that would have referred to God as father based on some of the Psalms. But even then, usually there was such reverence even around the name that they would try to clean that up later with disclaimers and things like that. But Jesus comes on the scene. He rarely says God. He says over and over and over this incredible emphasis now on God as father. And then after the cross, 
Jesus goes to the cross for our sins. He carries our guilt, our shame, the punishment that was due us. He raises from the dead. Mary Magdalene comes, finds him at the tomb. Remember, she realizes who he is, and she says, Rabboni, and she reaches at Jesus. She just can't believe that he's alive. And what is his response? Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but, to go to my, but you go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. All uh, that we have here in the Lord's Supper, or I keep saying that, all that we have in the Lord's, no one calls that Lord's Supper on the West Coast, do they? Because supper is a Southern term, I think. But anyway, all that we have, even in the concept of prayer, we need to understand prayer is something that is made possible for us because of the death of Jesus Christ. Matthew teaches us this, that we can come boldly into the throne room of grace because of the sacrifice that Jesus has already done on our behalf. But it's not just that we now have permission to come in before a king, but he's teaching us when you pray, and he's specific, say this, our father. In other words, this, God does not communicate with his children as if he's entering into negotiations. It's a father talking to his child. It's a child talking to his father. The relational dynamic of the way that we communicate with one another shifts based on relationships, formal conversations, negotiations, all that stuff. He says, when you pray, pray our father. It also reframes our inheritance because the Bible teaches us that because of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice, we've been adopted into the family. God is our father. Jesus is our joint heir. Everything that Jesus has in the father is whose? Ours. All of it. So what, what does that mean? It means we don't have to pray in such a way as if we're manipulating God to try to get what we want. And we do this. I have a prayer request, Lord. And I, I know I shouldn't ask you this because I haven't prayed lately and I've not, but I just, I need something. So I'm just, I'm, I'm really sorry. And I'm really, like we have to convince him to do something on our behalf. Look at what the text says, continuing on in the context. Look at verse, uh, verse seven and eight of Matthew six. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them for your Come on louder. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. He's like, you don't have to come before God like you're entering into some negotiation. Like, okay, God, forgive me, Father, for I've sinned. And uh, I need to do this and this and this. And I'm, gonna, and I'm really serious about this. And I, I promise I'll never do that again. But here's where I really need the help. It's not what he's saying. He already knows what you're going to ask in the first place. And you're not entering into negotiations with a distant king you're entering into conversation with a close father. There's a closeness in that, right? Our father, there's a, a closeness in that. But <laughs> there's also introduced a distance. Our father in heaven. There's a closeness of relationship, but a distance in position that occurs there. It's our father, this closeness, but in heaven. And then there's actually a tiny bit of further distance added. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. And this is what this does. This keeps us from creating an idol out of God to make God into the one that we want. There's this closeness of father. He approves of us. He loves us. He has given all things to us. The scriptures say all these kind of things. At the same time, we can't go, 
and therefore, I don't have to worry about this, and I can just ignore that, and I'll get a buy over here, and all these kinds of things. There's a closeness, but there's a distance, because it's speaking here, and it's reminding us in this daily prayer about the holiness of God. This is really, really important. It literally, what this means is, make your name holy, which seems like a weird thing for us to pray. Why does God need us to pray you make your name holy. You're God. You could probably do that without me asking for it. And certainly every day, I don't think would be necessary. You can just kind of do that. What's at play here? Well, you have to understand, identity is tied up in your name. If you, if you study even the way names are used in the Bible, all these kind of things, we see this. The name has something to do with who you are, the, uh, about who you are. So think about, for example, the way that God changes names, and then grows someone into them. So you got Abram, with no kids, becomes who? Abraham, which means father of nations. Didn't have kids yet. Name changed. God grows him into this. You have Simon, who becomes Peter, whose name means rock. Peter, shifting sand, coward Peter who will eventually become a man who will gladly die in the same way Jesus did for the sake of his faith and for his king. God has this pattern that you see in the Bible of naming someone, then growing them into that. And by the way, in the Bible, it does say in Revelation that we have been given a new name, written on a white stone that no one knows. And right now, we are in the process, those of us who are Christians, in the process of being changed into the image of God. He's growing us into this identity of who we're going to be. It's an amazing, incredible, beautiful thing. But listen, no one names God. When they said, who, who will I say that, that sent me when Moses says this? What's the answer? I am. I am. His name, that we can't possibly give him a name in our language that would summarize all that God is. There's such a vastness and a hugeness to this. It's so much more. All of these things, so much more. And this is why even simple things, this is maybe a slight little rabbit trail, but I like it. Um, in the Ten Commandments, there's something about God's name. What does the Ten Commandments say, say to do or not do about God's name? Do not take the Lord's name in vain. Is that just cussing? No. It's much more than that. Because when you become a son, when we adopted our son, his last name changed. He's now Bentley Hensley. He's part of the family. And so if we are adopting, if we are being adopted into the family of God, we become God's child. We're praying our father. There is a way in which we can defame the name of God, not just through the speaking of words, but even the name itself has to do with the character of God. And so we can carry the Lord's name in vain. In other words, we can profane the name of God, or we can, we can give a false representation of who God is. We can cause the world to continue to believe that God is something other than what he actually is, the good, holy king. And so here in this prayer, embedded into it from the very beginning, this closeness and farness. Our Father who is in heaven, holy be your name. It's, it's really a reminder for us that he is a holy God, that he's our Father and he's holy. And it goes even further into the next verse. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I mean, a kingdom is a place where a ruler reigns. So, so you're saying in this prayer, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. 
well, what is that talking about? Why is that there? I mean, it doesn't take too much of a study of the sovereignty of God to see that even when men don't will God's will to be done, God will intervene. This is for us. This is us praying daily, may your reign increase in my life. May my understanding of your holiness increase every day. It's a constant reminder, may your will be done in my life. May your reign be done in my life. Remember, this is something Jesus wants us to pray over and over and over and over. He's ingraining into us who this is. And this is kind of my analogy of this. A lot of times we look at prayer as like, Man, there's this issue here. Um, my loved one is sick. I don't know if they're going to be okay. I need to go before God, and I need to pray and beg God that he will heal them. And we can have this mindset of like, and if I pray hard enough, I can move God's will in line with mine. But I, I mean, I'm a fisherman. I'm on the water all the time. I was there last night, and at one point, we pulled over because we wanted to go fish this one spot, and I took the anchor on the boat, and we threw it over to the shore and pulled the boat close to shore. Now, let me ask, when I did that, did I pull the shore to me or did I pull the boat or me, in other words, to the shore? Only one of them's moving. And so a lot of what happens in prayer is less about us convincing God to do something we need or to fulfill something. And you go, that sounds terrible. Don't worry. He's going to cover that stuff in just a minute. But he wants to remind you, hey, I'm your father and I'm the king and there's a kingdom and I do rule. And this is opportunity for us on a daily basis because we need it to say, it's your kingdom. You're the ruler. You're the king. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In verse 11, though, he does get to that. But, but what about the stuff that we are dealing with? What about the things that we have that we have need of? What about all of these things? Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. So if he already knows what we need before we ask him, then why are we being encouraged by Jesus to go daily to God and pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread? If he already knows what we need before we ask him, why would we do this and do this continually? Because one of the most important aspects of prayer and one of the biggest benefits to us is that prayer in and of itself um, is, is what tears down that spirit of self-provision and self-dependency and self-protection. I mean, the, the actual discipline, if you will, of prayer is about stepping away from trying to solve everything on our own, take care of everything on our own. There's a problem, what are we going to do? It, it's an actual turn and dependence to God that his will would be done, that he will be in charge. And it, it's, it's getting away from this idea of self-protection. This is, this is kind of a, a common human instinct sort of thing. And, and here's, I want you to think about this. We, Jesus could say, or we could say to someone who's like, why do you pray for those things? Why do you pray? And oh, all those things are going to work out. But look, what Jesus is giving us here is the antidote for all of our needs, all of our fears, all of our insecurities, all of our worries, all of these things. He's saying, go to the Lord. The Lord will take care of your daily provision. The Lord's going to take care of this. But listen, the antidote to all of our needs, fears, all of that stuff is not everything working out okay. The antidote is you have a father. And, and we see this, and I actually use this as an analogy in a teaching sometimes, so I don't want to spend too much time on it. But we see this even in the life of Christ. Christ who said at one point, what, what father, if his child asked him for a loaf of bread, would give him a what? Stone. 
Now the implication is, no good father, if his kid said, I'm hungry, can I have bread, would give him a stone. This is the same Jesus who was in the wilderness being tempted for 40 days and 40 nights, had no food. Satan shows up. What's the first thing Satan tempts Jesus with? He says, hey, if you're hungry, you could speak to one of these stones, right? And it would just turn right into bread and you would be good. What is it that he's saying there? And, and my favorite uh, uh, quote about this particular, that chapter in Matthew, Matthew chapter 4, Russell Moore actually said this about it. He said, listen, God, uh, Satan is not just trying to trip Jesus. We call it the temptation of Christ. He is being tempted. He's not just trying to get him to mess up and they go, aha. He's trying to adopt him. He's trying to get him to go, my, my father has not provided for me. My father is not taking care of me. After all, I'm, I'm hungry and I don't even have bread. My father is not taking care of me. That's why he goes into, what's the next one he goes into? Man, say the word and all the kingdoms of the world will be yours. This temptation takes place. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter three. There is a constant temptation that the enemy is always whispering in our ear that says, God's holding out on you. There are good things you don't have because God either can't provide it or won't provide it. And you've got to stop trusting in him. You've got to stop trusting in him. And as Satan would be saying, trust in me. Another snake saying that, I think. Any Jungle Book fans out there? Did I miss completely on that one? If I did, that's your fault because that was funny. But, but that's the idea. And in going to, can anybody else, by the way, think of another biblical story that talks about maybe bread on a daily basis? Anyone? Manna. The people in the Old Testament every day. Now think about the timing on this. The people of Israel have been rescued from Pharaoh. They've been set free from slavery and they're headed towards this promised land that's been promised, but they're, they're not there yet. They're in this in-between time, this wilderness period, and they're hungry and they cry out. They're grumbling actually about it. I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. And God provides for them and he provides manna, which literally means what in the world is this? <coughs> excuse me, but there was a little weird little trick to manna. Every morning they would get up, they would walk outside and the bread was just there. They had all the food that they needed. The manna was there, but there was a rule about it. Let's say someone wanted to sleep in the next day and they got the idea, you know what? If I collect a whole bunch of manna today, throw it in a jar or something, I can sleep in tomorrow. I don't have to get up. I don't have to do any of that. In fact, if I gather enough, I could in my own efforts just gather up a bunch of stuff. I might be good for the week. I mean, we don't have refrigerators, so bread won't stay good forever, but I can make it a good solid week with my own efforts. But what would happen the next morning when they got up and they came to the bread? It was full of worms. It had rotted. And even in this, there's this lesson that goes on and on and on and on. God is raising children who are dependent on the Father. It's the opposite of the way that we tend to raise kids today. We raise kids to be independent. Like we, when they're babies, we can't wait till they can bathe themselves and go to the bathroom themselves. And then there's always that next phase of life. You're like, man, I can't wait till my oldest is driving because then she can run all these kids around for me and I don't have to do, like there's this constant desire of independence, which means I don't have to do all of these other things. But God does everything actually the exact opposite of that. He's raising children in constant dependence on him. And so Jesus says, pray. Remember, to who? 
the Father, give us this day our daily bread. Give me this fresh daily. But if we try to live in such a way like the Israelites, where we're not going to depend on God, we'll just store this stuff up, we'll take things on, what we are inevitably saying is that there is something better and more sure than God's word, and that's our effort. And that's not what God is desiring of his children's children's. Verse 12 goes on, and this, this is the hardest one. Forgive us our, which word are we going with? I'm in the ESV, we're in debts, but if you're a trespasses person, that's okay too. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. If there was ever a part that needs to be done daily, it's this one, because this one's terrifying. This one's terrifying. Forgive us our debts, trespasses, sins, errors, as we have forgiven our, balancing the two out. Forgive me as I'm forgiving someone else. Now, what typically happens, uh, left to our own devices, human nature is like a spiral of vengeance. Someone does me wrong, oh yeah, well I'll get you back. And now they're offended, they're mad at you, so they want to get you back. And round and round and round and round and round it goes. But, but here's the reality of the Christian life. In Christ, on the cross, the spiral stopped and he absorbs it all. Even in that moment, hanging on the cross, he says what? Forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And so this idea, the right to get even, has no place whatsoever in the life of a believer. Like there's no room for it when you understand the reality of the cross. Now, a couple disclaimers. Forgiveness doesn't mean no consequences. Forgiveness doesn't mean that you become best friends. Forgiveness isn't even reconciliation because you need two parties for that. You need two people who are going to humble themselves before that. This is speaking to a one-sided, you make a decision to forgive. And in doing that, you are relinquishing the right to retaliate and you're relinquishing lordship over what they have to pay for what they've done for you. And in doing this, this is what you're doing, and this is where it's key. Please grab this right here. You're trusting that every act of vengeance that anyone ever could possibly deserve for anything that they ever did about you will be dealt with in one of two places, judgment day or the cross, and only those two places. You're trusting that, okay, they sinned against me, they wronged me, they're Christians. And even that sin, even if they haven't repented of it yet, because a lot of times we want forgiveness to be earned, right? I will forgive them as soon as. It's not what he's talking about. But I, I'm going to trust that the blood of Christ on the cross was enough for that sin as well. And it's linked to our understanding of our own forgiveness that God has given us. But this is so hard. And then Jesus didn't really help us with this because he sort of doubles down. Because if we fast forward to the end of this in Matthew 6 verse 14, he says this, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. But what's the context that we're in? He is who? Our father. How can we possibly call him our father? Because Jesus Christ has already absorbed all of our sin, all of our guilt, 
all of our shame. It is through Christ and Christ alone that we can even say our Father in the first place. And so how can we say our Father, turn around and hold grudges against anyone against us? In doing so, you're almost saying like the blood of Christ wasn't enough. They deserve worse. And he's saying, no, 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 no. That's not what we're going to do. And if you take this back to the lordship part of this, I mean, isn't every sin against us really kind of a, or the way, I, let, me, let me rephrase that. Forgiveness is so central to what it means to be a Christian that the way we handle forgiveness can often give you a signal as to what God you're actually following, what king you're actually serving. Because when we react sins against us, we tend to, if we're not reacting out of the gospel, they're blasphemies, aren't they? against our true king. Things like, how dare they do that to me? Right? Forgiveness is such a core, key element of what it means to be a Christian. And it's one of the hardest things that we can do. It's what Jesus is giving us here is a grace to say, listen, daily, just as you would daily say, give us this day our daily bread, the very next thing he says, and forgive us our trespasses, forgive us our sins, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who sin against us. It's hard. It's hard, but it's important. And then verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You say, well, that seems a little weird. God doesn't lead us into temptation, does he? Does he? Well, can you think of two places in the Bible where Jesus was tempted? Two stories in the Bible where Jesus was tempted. We already referred to one, temptation in the wilderness. Where was the second one? That one was at the beginning of his ministry. What time at the end of his ministry was he tempted? In the garden. And in the garden, what does he say? I, I, I don't want to do this. This is his paraphrasing. I don't want to do this. I, I don't, if there's any other way, I don't want to do this. But the test before him in both cases, will he be the humble, self-sacrificing Messiah? Or will he be like every other one of us that just wants to build our own kingdoms? And in both cases, what is it that he actually does? It's the same kind of thing he's telling us right here to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine. Thy will be done in my life, in this garden, in this city, as it is in heaven. So here, what does this then mean? Lead us not into temptation, but does he sometimes? Does God allow us into places sometimes where we're tested? Yes. So then what's the follow-up to that? But deliver me from evil. Now I want you to think about this. There is an inherent humility in this that's saying, Lord, please don't lead me into that test. But if you do, I need you. I need you. Lord, today when I go to work, please don't lead me into temptation. There's going to be opportunities all day long. There's people I don't like. There's situations that come up. There's customers that are always arguing with me. There's all of this stuff all the time that gives me opportunity after opportunity to go, how dare you do that to me and hold grudges that says, oh, I'll go this extra and I'll cheat over here to make more money because I want to make sure I'm providing for my family. There's all sorts of opportunities to do all of these things you just asked me to do. Lord, please don't lead me into those temptations because I am weak. There is inherent in the Lord's prayer an admission that he is the majesty, he is the king, he is the Lord, and we need help 
So Lord, provide for me. Lord, forgive me as I forgive others. Lord, Lord, please don't lead me into temptation, but if you do, deliver me, Lord. The, the beauty of, of this model of prayer is it is putting us in a position that we understand rightly about ourselves, understand rightly about him, but also put ourselves in that place where we're going to the one who can actually help us in the first place. Because I think all of us who have walked with Jesus for any number of years, and really probably didn't take very long to learn this lesson, if we try to do it on our own, it's exhausting, is it not? And it's miserable, and it's hard, and it's a failure. Look, let's just be honest with something, right? Following Jesus is hard. Can we agree with that? Like following Jesus is hard. He said it would be. Following Jesus is hard. When Jesus followed the Father, he ended up, think about that, for 40 days and 40 nights with no food. Is that easy? Like that's miserable. Following Jesus is hard. But we have a Father. We have a good Father. And prayer is a gift to us that reminds us of the one who has everything under control. Reminds us of the king who, yes, has everything ordained, has all of these things under control, but at the same time is close because he's our father. It reminds us of where our help actually is, as David writes in the Psalms. Prayer is a gift. So why do we often go, and it's hard, and it's hard why is prayer so burdensome? I would submit that maybe that's Satan's temptation right there that's saying, I need to keep you self-reliant. I need to keep you away from the lifeline. I need to keep you away from the reminder that God's your father. I need to keep you away from the reminder that God is the one of forgiveness. I need to keep you away from the reminder that God is the one who provides for you. I need to keep you away from all of these reminders. And so what I'll do is I'll just make you think it's hard and he's not really listening anyway. And it doesn't really matter. It's just a discipline and you've got more important things to do. And yet we see the example of Jesus who prayed all the time. He prayed all the time. He prayed before big decisions. We find him in prayer before he chose the disciples. He prayed about where to go. We find him when healing and notoriety and all kinds of things in cities is just bubbling up and everybody wants him to come. And he goes, no, I've been in prayer. We need to go over here now. He prayed before, during, and after trials. If Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, found such dependence on prayer, how much more us? But the problem is we start looking at that through the lens of works and go, that's something I have to do to get God to approve of me. And God the whole time is saying, I approve of you. I'm your father. I can't approve of you any more than that. But come to me. You who are weary and heavy laden, come to me. Come to me. Come to me. And our mindset gets so wrapped up around the difficulty of that. So I just want to challenge all of us on this today. And this is not about a burdensome, like, I don't care if you pray for 30 seconds. This is not like I want, from now on, we're going to pray this. I want you to start trying and asking God, Lord, will you create in me a different mindset concerning prayer? Lord, create in me a different attitude to understand what a gift that this is. Lord, create in me a desire to talk to my father, which for some of us is a lot harder, right? I mean, fatherhood has ripple effects for a long, long time. Amen? But he is a good father who is in control of all things and yet chose to die on your behalf and said, I will give you everything. 
Maybe we, maybe we just need to remind ourselves that prayer is just a gift. Maybe a mindset alone will help. Let's ask him for that now, can we? Father, at the very core of prayer is an admission of dependence on you and weakness on our end. And Lord, I think for many of us, Lord, here, especially those who maybe have been walking with you for a long time and heard a million sermons on prayer, this just becomes one more um, religious activity, one more burden to bear, one more thing to do during the week. And it can have such negative connotations or it can be a source of guilt, a source of comparison with other Christians. They pray a lot. Why don't I? All of those things. But God, I'm just praying that you would help us with the mindset and the understanding of what a gift it is that we get to speak to you. Lord, it's an act of faith. We know that. And so I pray, Lord, that you would build that up in us for sure. But Lord, help us to have an understanding of the joy and privilege that it is to come before our Father in prayer. Lord, I pray against the enemy who would seek to make us more self-dependent, who would seek to have us look other ways, convince us that our time could be better spent doing other things that would benefit us more, or who would heap guilt or shame upon us, and help us to return back to the actual context of even what you teach us regarding prayer, and that is the joy and beauty of the fact that you, our God and King, have made us your sons and daughters. And that what a joy it is to have been far from you and yet reconciled to you through your son. To be your child. To be a joint heir of Christ. Lord, what a gift that is. I pray, Lord, for everyone here. I pray, God, as they walk out of this room, Lord, please, I beg of you, don't let anyone walk out of here with a spirit of shame or condemnation. But of awe. Restore us, Lord, with wonder. May these words that for many of us have really lost vitality, lost meaning because we've heard them so many times. Lord, may they just come alive again. May this model of prayer, Lord, be affected in our lives and, and produce joy at the fact that we get to spend time with our Father. I pray you would encourage your people in this area. I pray you would encourage your church in this area, that you would show us the tangible benefit of this area, and that you would hear us as we pray. And let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Let's pray out loud. Keep going. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week. And I challenge you guys, spend some time in this, even tomorrow morning. Like, think of the Lord's Prayer less about, now I have to do this. Spend a few minutes going, what does the Lord's Prayer itself teach us about Jesus, about who he is, about what he did, even his relationship with God the Father? It's an amazing thing to, definitely worth spending some time on. Otherwise, by the way, be here, if you will, Sunday this morning, remember, or this coming Sunday morning, uh, Hunter Beaumont from the Acts 29 in Denver, Colorado is going to be here preaching this week. You don't want to miss that this Sunday. Other than that, God bless you guys. Go walk in the grace, mercy, and love of your Heavenly Father. God bless.